Okay, so last time we started this uh, series on biblical perfection. Some people call it sinless perfection. I don't like using that terminology too much myself because people attach all kinds of things to it. And one of the things we did last week to start out was say what perfection is not. So what do you remember from last week when I said perfection is not A, B, C, D, E? Oh, John. It's not mental or intellectual perfection because we are still humans, we still forget things. The only person who has that is God. He's the only one who has that. What else do we say perfection is not? Jenna? It's not physical perfection. It's not physical perfection. It could be the buffest bodybuilder there is and not have one ounce of fat on your body. That's even possible. And you still wouldn't be physically perfect because you're going to die someday. And you're still subject to sicknesses and diseases, no matter how well you eat. What else do we say perfection is not? right. It doesn't mean that you don't need Jesus. Such a statement really limits what Jesus is needed for. It assumes Jesus is only needed for forgiveness. This is not true. Because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And what do we say perfection is? Moral perfection. That's right. Keeping the moral commandments of God. It's also We also said it was love. Because all the law is fulfilled in this one command. Love the Lord to God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Of course, if you're doing that, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Then he went through a bunch of things to see that we are able to obey God. He doesn't command the impossible. His commandments are not burdensome. But God does not uh, punish people for all eternity for the unavoidable. He punishes people for all eternity for the unavoidable, for things they could have done otherwise. And so we defined what perfection was last week. This week we're going to look at some proof texts people use against the doctrine of perfection, some arguments they use. Um, we actually will finish up the arguments against it next week as well as uh, talk about how we can live holy in this life. But first today, before we go into the proof text people use against perfection, let's define what sin is. Oftentimes people won't hold to this doctrine of perfection because they don't define sin properly. Uh, some people will say that uh, if a baby cries, that's sin. Uh, some people will say, I, I wake up in the morning sinning because I'm breathing. You know, They'll say all kinds of funny things that really, they, they uh, make clear to us that they don't understand what sin is. Okay, so we need to make sure uh, what, what sin is. God's word does not tell us what kind of body to have or what kind of nature to be born with. God's word tells us what kind of choices to make. Okay? So sin is a bad choice. 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And the Greek word for lawlessness is just a, a, an A in front of it and negating the word law. Anomia 
is lawlessness, and it means a state or condition of being disposed to what is lawless. So basically living like there is no law. That's what lawlessness is. Once again, it comes from the Greek word anomia, which is just the A in front of the Greek word for namas, law. Anomia is lawlessness, a state or condition of being disposed to what is lawless, acting as if there is no law to obey. This is where we get the, the term antinomianism from. These are people who are against God's law, who act as if there's no law to obey. If you go back to Matthew 7, Jesus says to those who he never knew that they are practicing lawlessness, that they're acting like there's nothing to obey. And a lot of people will define grace this way, they'll define salvation this way. It's salvation from God's command. The salvation grace is simply, um, I'm forgiven of everything past, present, and future. Because there's nothing left for me to obey. And if you say obedience is required at all, that's just work salvation. Which is not true. So sin is lawlessness. It's breaking God's law. Okay? That's 1 John 3, 4. James 4, 17. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so we see there in James 4, 17, that in order for sin to be sin to you, in order for something to be sin to you, you have to have knowledge. You have to have knowledge, understanding of what is required of you in order for you to be sinning. That's why we can say babies, children, toddlers, they're not sinners in God's eye because they don't have any knowledge or understanding before God of what is required of them. So you must know to do good and then decide not to do it for that to be sin to you. Okay, That's James 4.17. So if you're ignorant of something, then God does not consider it a sin for you. And that's why, you know, as we grow in knowledge, uh, we grow in obedience. Because we grow in things that we didn't know before. Become knowledgeable of things we didn't know before. Now, some people, of course, would claim ignorance on things they're not really ignorant of. This isn't an excuse them of that. If they truly do know they're supposed to do something, and they say, oh, I didn't know that. Then they're still sitting. You know, I have my, you know, I have Eli tell me that all the time. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, you did. Am I going to let him get, get free or am I going to discipline him from it? I'm going to discipline him for it because I know that he knows better. And he can't claim ignorance. Romans 14, 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So if you can't do something in faith without doubting that God wants you to do it, then you're sinning. And this can be different from person to person. Uh, example. Let's say I wanted to move my family to Ireland to be a missionary there. But God was not ordering my steps to do that. If I went there and did that, even though it may look to everybody else like a good thing, I would be sinning. Because I would have doubts in my mind that God was leading me to do this. But if I go in faith, knowing the Lord has commanded me to do this, if I didn't do it, now it would be a sin to me. So you must do everything by faith. You must walk by faith. So there's no doubting in our mind of what the Lord leads us to do. Now, these are things 
you go to the beginning of Romans 14, these are talking about doubtful things. The things that are not expressly taught about in the Word of God. That's why you must, each one of you, have a personal relationship with God and listen to His voice. Get in your prayer closet. Speak half as much as you listen, as you have two ears and one mouth, and just listen to the Lord and allow Him to teach you. Walk in the Spirit so you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So anything that's not of faith is sin. So sin is knowledge of what is right and wrong and not doing it. Of course, that knowledge comes by God's law. If you break God's law and you know you shouldn't be doing that, you're sinning. If God tells you to do something, you don't do it, you're sinning. And of course, above and beyond those things, things that are doubtful things, things that you must be hearing from the Lord, if you don't do those and he tells you to do those things, you're in sin. Because anything that's not of faith is sin. And then you have the Greek word for sin, which is hamartia. It means a departure from divine standards of uprightness. A departure from divine standards of uprightness. A destructive evil power. That's so true. Sin is only destructive. Sin is never constructive. Sin is never good. It's always bad. No matter how much pain you may save yourself by doing it, no matter how convincing it may seem, no matter how pleasurable it may be or may seem, it's never good. It's always destructive. It's a departure of divine standards of uprightness. So this is how we, we this is the biblical doctrine of sin. We went through a whole series on hamartia, hamartiology, what sin is. But it's good to understand these things so we can understand what God is requiring of us. Now, he's not requiring the impossible of us, but what the Bible says. Okay, let's go to the first proof text, 1 John 1.8. Now, we've talked about this so much in this fellowship, and there's already videos out there discussing why it couldn't be interpreted the way people tend to interpret it. But let's just read it. We're gonna, I'm not really going to touch on that side of it too much. I'm really going to touch more on proving to you that in 1 John that he is coming against Gnosticism, which I haven't really done in a thorough way yet. I've mentioned, I've given a couple verses here and there, but I want to show you how the doctrine of Gnosticism is mentioned several times in here without actually mentioning the word. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, have no sin is in the present tense, and people would oftentimes say, well, look, if you say that presently, you have no sin in you, then you are deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. Now, if we isolate that verse, and we don't read the rest of 1 John, read the verse right before it, the verses right after it, then we might come to a conclusion that, well, I can't be perfect in this life. I can't live holy. I have to always have sin in my life. But I mean, a simple cursory glance of what he says right before that, this is the message that we heard in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, sin, then we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, no sin at all, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the three verses before it say that if you're not, 
If you have any sin in your life and you're aware of them, you're walking in the light as he is in the light, so walk in the light you have. Go back to James 4, 17. If you, if you are knowledgeable of a sin in your life, and you're still doing it anyway, then and you claim to have fellowship with God, you're a liar. You're a liar. Not only that, you really don't have fellowship with God. You really don't have fellowship with the other saints. And Jesus Christ has not cleansed you from your sins. Which proves that your future sins are not forgiven ahead of time. Otherwise, what's the point of even saying that? It's already, you've already been cleansed of the future sins. And of course, in verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the moment you confess to God, you homologeo is the root word, you agree with God about your sins, that they're wicked, they're vile, and you depart from them, he's faithful and just to forgive you, to not hold them against you any longer, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, 1 John 1, 8 says that we have to always have sin in our lives, that verse 9 would have to be interpreted like this, that the moment we confess our sins to God, we start to sin again. That's what I have to say. That's not what it's saying, friends. What kind of confession is that? That the moment you stop your confession, you go back to your sins. I would have to say that he's not cleansed us from all, but only some unrighteousness. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, 1 John 1 is saying that we have to always have sin in our lives. Then why? What was the purpose of him even writing this letter if the purpose was that you may not sin? So obviously 1 John 1a, as I've said many times before, is referring to this group of people called the Gnostics. Let me tell you about the Gnostics. Here's some things they believed. They believed that the Old Testament God was inferior to the New Testament God. Now how many times have you heard that in the open air? Oh, you're preaching the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and forgiveness and acceptance and tolerance. You're preaching the God of the Old Testament. What does the Bible say? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. They thought he was an inferior God because he created matter. What you see around you, your bodies, the trees, the dirt. And matter is inherently sinful, according to Gnostics. This is where the sinful nature of doctrine comes from. That my flesh is, in and of itself, is sinful. But your flesh is made of the dust of the earth. Just like Adam's was. That's why when you die, it goes right back to dust. It and goes right back to dust. They also believed that Jesus, because he was holy, did not literally come in the flesh. It just looked like it. Because everything that's spiritual is good and holy. And everything that is fleshly or matter is sinful. And so they believed that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Because spiritual things can't die. Only fleshly things can die. He didn't really die on the cross. And they believe that you can be holy even though your flesh is sinning because flesh can't help but to be sinful and your spirit is holy. And really salvation to them was having the spirit separated from the flesh. Which is where we get this idea of when we die we go to heaven and be spirit people the rest of our lives. For all eternity. That's Gnosticism. Not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you'll be on the if you're a Christian, you'll be on the new earth. You have a new earth. The righteousness dwells. And so these are some of the things that Gnosticism teaches. And so I want you, as you have those things in your mind, and of course, 
Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis because they believe that they had some kind of special knowledge. That's what the word, Greek word gnosis means. It means knowledge. They believe they had some kind of special knowledge that no one else had. Even the apostles didn't have this. And that you needed this special knowledge, which means you needed them. You needed this special knowledge to know the truth fully and to be saved. Okay, so with these things in mind, let's, let's, let's read some verses here from 1 John. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the words of life. Word of life. So Jesus was handled. He was fleshly. He was physical. He wasn't just spirit. They handled him with their hands. They touched him. He touched them. He touched other people. So he was physical. He did come in the flesh. Verse 5. The second part of verse 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is referring to the creator God that's supposedly inferior, and he created matter which was wicked, which means if you're creating something that's wicked, you must be wicked yourself. But John says, and God is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now this is referring to the Gnostics, who would say, well, I am, I am holy, I have no sin in me, because their flesh was sinning, their spirit wasn't sinning. So they would say they're holy when they're not even holy. That's who 1 John 1 is talking about. It's talking about those who claim to have no sin, but yet do have sin. Those are the ones who are deceiving themselves. And the truth is not in them. Of course, 1 John 2, 3-6, we've said this many times, that if you know God, you'll obey Him. If you don't obey Him, you don't know Him. See, now they're claiming to have this gnosis, this knowledge from God... And no one else has because they're these special people. But yet they're not even obeying him. And me and my children, we memorize 1 John 2, 3, 3, 4. And I say 1, 2, 3, 4. The basics, the ABCs of Christianity. 1, 2, 3, 4. 1 John 2, 3, 3, 4. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So if God is the source of this gnosis you have, Gnostics... You have to know him to get this knowledge from him. But you're not even keeping his command, so how could you even claim to know him? This is basics of Christianity. You know, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Christians aren't worldly. Christians aren't worldly. And verse 17 says, The world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Abides where forever? On this earth. On this earth forever. Not in heaven. You're not going to be in heaven for all eternity. You're going to be on this earth. A new heaven and a new earth. 1 John 2.18. You see this first uh, glimpse that he's, you know, he's coming out with this. Little children is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now the many Antichrists have come. By which we know that it's the last hour. So he's calling these people Antichrists. Not the Antichrist. Antichrist. The Antichrist is someone who's against the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. They're against the Anointed One, or they're false Anointed Ones themselves. Because the Antichrist is the false Anointed One. The very opposite of the true Anointed One. Just like these other Anointed Ones, supposedly, are against the Anointed One. 
but they're not the anti-anointed one who's going to come later on. And then we see in 1 John 2.27, But the anointing which you have received from him abides, remains in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. The same anointing teach you concerning all things, and is true, and it's not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. He's not saying here, he's not coming against the biblical doctrine of having God calling teachers out to teach the church. He's not contradicting the Apostle Paul. He's coming against these people who have this special anointing, supposedly, and you need them to teach you. And he's saying, listen, you have an anointing. You've heard from us, the apostles. You know what the truth is. You don't need them to teach you anything else. You have everything you need from what we've already taught you and from what the anointing the Holy Spirit teaches you. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now already in the world. So he's calling these people Antichrists. And if they can't get this basic stuff down like Jesus Christ came in the flesh, then don't listen to anything they say. Don't even bother. Because they have an Antichrist spirit. And you wouldn't sit around and listen to an Antichrist spirit and eat the meat and spit out the bones, would you? You wouldn't waste your time on them. You just ignore them altogether. Because they can't get the basics down. And the Bible is very clear on that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. 1 John 4, 6. This is John talking about him and the other apostles here. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. And he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So he's saying these people who claim to have this special knowledge, this extra knowledge that you need to hear, but they won't even listen to the apostles who touched and handled Jesus, who heard what he had to say in the flesh, then why would you bother listening to anything they have to say? They have the spirit of error. They're not even listening to us. Those who know Jesus, who walked with Jesus for three years. They have the spirit of error because they won't listen to us. You need to listen to us. It's not a prideful thing for him to say that. It's not a prideful thing for John to say that. He's just telling the facts. He's an apostle. He was called directly by Jesus when Jesus was in the flesh. And he learned from him for three years. 1 John 5, 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. It is a spirit who bears witness, because the spirit is truth. Now, there were some Gnostics who, instead of saying that uh, Jesus wasn't literally in the flesh, that he was only spirit, he seemed to be in the flesh, they would say, well, Jesus became the Christ at his baptism when the spirit descended upon him, but that spirit left him before he died, because the spirit can't die. It's a different version of Gnosticism. But this is coming against that. Because if Jesus didn't literally shed his blood, then where does doctrine of atonement go? Where does the doctrine of redemption go? And the ransom by his blood go? Well, it goes out the door. 
But he said he came by, not just by water, by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of error, but the Spirit of God bears witness because the Spirit is truth. So he came by water and blood. So hopefully you can see from these scriptures that it's so clear to me, even though he doesn't name it by name, that John is coming against Gnosticism. And it proves even further to me that verse 8 of chapter 1 is coming against the Gnostics, not against the doctrine of holiness, especially in light of the rest of this book, which clearly uplifts righteousness, clearly uplifts holiness and biblical perfection. Anyone who wants, I mean, most people who bring out this verse, they, I'll ask them, have you read the rest of 1 John? And they can't, they can't testify they have. They probably went to some website and found 1 John 1, 8 quoted as, as a proof text of the doctrine of sinful imperfectionism. And they took an array with it. Instead of reading the whole context of what John is talking about here. Okay? Let's go to Romans 3. Romans 3.23 is often quoted, but there's also other parts of Romans 3 that's quoted. And I talk more about Romans 3 and, and the doctrine of salvation on the two uh, videos on salvation by works and what it really is. But we're going to just touch on it a little bit here. Romans 3, starting in verse 9, actually starting in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside and together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongue as they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now if we were to take those nine verses there, and isolate them like I just did, and read just that, we would come to the conclusion that there's no one on the earth who fears God. There's no one on the earth who does righteous. There's no one on the earth who does good. And that they're all as wicked as can be. But is that the point the Apostle Paul is making by quoting these Old Testament verses? Well, let's go to verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have previously charged both Jews and and Greeks, that are all under sin. So the we in that verse is Jews, and the they is the Gentiles, because the Jews had, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 2, you'll see that the Jews had this prideful problem. They thought because they had the oracles of God, because they were God's chosen people, because they had the circumcision of Abraham, and they were children of Abraham, that they were automatically holy before God. That they needed no forgiveness, needed no salvation, they didn't need Jesus Christ for salvation. They didn't need those things. But he says right here, are we better than they? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all. For he previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they're all under sin. And then he used the Jewish, Jewish scriptures to prove to the Jewish people that they are sinners too. Not that they have to be sinners. Not that they have to continue in that way. Not that they can't ever be righteous or ever seek God or ever be holy. But if you look at the whole of their life, they have sinned against God. They have been unrighteous. Verse 19, right after this passage I just read. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, who are the Jews. They're the ones who are under the law. 
that every mouth, not just the Gentiles, but every mouth may be stopped, and all, and all the world, including the Jews, may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, the law of Moses, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is a knowledge of sin. So we see here that uh, when he's saying none are righteous, no, not one, his point here is to prove to the Jews they need justification, not by the works of the law, because they've already broken it. And once you've broken the law, the law has no more means of justifying you. The law just has a means of condemning you and showing you that you're a sinner. They need a different kind of justification. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law of Moses is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So they cling to their scriptures, but their own scriptures reveal a different type of righteousness from God. A righteousness that's through the blood of Jesus Christ, that forgiveness comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference whether you're a Jew or going to talk. And then Romans 3.23, the other proof text that people use in Romans 3 is, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, have sinned, of course, as you can tell in your English Bibles, is in the past tense. In the Greek, it's the aorist tense, which is the Greek past tense. And then you have, fall short of the glory of God. Now that is in the present tense. The King James isn't as clear on this. It says, come short of the glory of God, which could be interpreted as a perfect tense, but actually the present tense here, fall short of the glory of God. But what, is, what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? What does that mean? I mean, we've, we've dealt with this in the open air many times, but I don't think we've ever gone deep into what that means. Um, it could be this fall short here, the Greek word for that, could be translated in need of, okay, or lacking. And what I think it's simply saying here is that because of our past sins, which I just talked about, our past sins, that we are presently in need of the glory of God. We are presently in need of forgiveness of past sins so we can be seen as righteous in God's sight. You know, when we've gone through Matthew 18 in the past, we looked at the parable of the unmerciful servant. We saw that when he went back to his sin, he didn't have mercy upon his fellow servant. He didn't forgive his fellow servant like God forgave him, like the king forgave him, that his past sins were reinstalled. So no matter how holy we get, saints, no matter how holy we get, friends, we're still always going to be in need of the glory of God. We're going to be in need of this because we have a record that does not simply go away. God doesn't hold it against us. It doesn't go away. It stays there. God doesn't become forgetful all of a sudden or uh, cease to be omniscient. He still remembers it. He doesn't hold it against us. And so that's the reason why it can be in the present tense there. But in being in need of the glory of God does not mean that you have to keep on sinning. To say that is to go directly against the rest of Scripture, let alone the book of Romans itself. So if, if we go back to our sins, as we see in Matthew 18 other passages, God will reinstall our past sins. And notice it doesn't say, for all have sinned, that we have to keep on sinning. That's talking about our past sins once again. 
Let's say, for all have to keep on sinning and fall short of the glory of God. It says, all have sinned. And that's the whole, it goes along with this whole point in this passage, that Jews and Gentiles alike have sinned and are in need of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, which is equated with being forgiven by God in Romans 4. Forgiveness from God, not having your sins held against you, not having your sins imputed or counted to you is the same thing as having righteousness from God. Okay, let's go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Not that I have already attained, the Apostle Paul speaking, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. And some people say, look, see, he hasn't obtained perfection, but he's still pressing on even though he hasn't obtained it. So this gives credence supposedly to this, this idea that, well, I can't be perfect, but God wants me to strive for it. But I'll never be perfect in this life. But let's see what kind of perfection he's talking about here. Let's go back to verse 10. <clears throat> he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained. Already attained what? The resurrection from the dead. Or I'm already perfected. So it's talking about physical perfection. He's pressing on that he may lay hold of that for the same reason that Christ laid hold of him, that he may be resurrected from the dead. Of course, in the first resurrection, not the second one. And as I said last week in Luke 13, 32, Jesus uses the same, uses perfection in the same way. He says when he's talking about uh, Herod, Uh, verse 31, On that very day some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go, tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. And so that's when you get physical perfection, that the resurrection from the dead. It's obvious from context here that the Apostle Paul is not talking about moral perfection, but he hasn't attained that, and he's pressing on to that. He's pressing on to physical perfection. Of course, there's lots of things that have to be done for physical perfection to be attained. You must persevere in the faith until the end. Otherwise, you won't receive that first resurrection from the dead. You'll receive the second resurrection, which is not a good thing. Yes, brother? Luke 13, 32. Now we'll go to Matthew 6. That's what Brother John alluded to you last week. And analyze this a little more. Matthew 6 and verse 12. And Jesus gives a, you know, a prayer here. He says, uh, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
and people would, who are using this proof text to prove that we have to keep on sinning, to always be in sin in our lives, they'll point back to verse 11 which says, Give us this day our daily bread. They'll say, Look, daily. The word daily is there. And then it says, Forgive us our debts. So we have to daily actually forgive us of our debts, which means we have to sin daily. Does that make any sense? Are they being rational? Are they being logical? The daily is before bread there. Because we do need to eat daily. I mean, we can fast, but typically we all eat every day. Uh, some two, some three times a day, some even more than that. Uh, but we do eat every day for the most part. But it doesn't mean we have to sin every day. It doesn't say we sin daily and therefore we are in need of daily forgiveness. Nor does it say that we should pray this prayer verbatim. That's what the Catholics do. They'll, they'll do it and go like this. You know, They'll say the prayer and they think that that's doing something. But right before that it says in verse 7, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions. So is he saying, I mean, and verse 9 says, in this manner, therefore pray. Is he saying pray these exact words? No, it's not a sin if you do pray these exact words. But you shouldn't be having vain repetitions. Your prayers should mean something to you. They should mean something to God. Just like your worship should be, not just words coming out of your mouth, but from your heart. Your prayers should come from your heart. And most of your prayers should be done in your room, in your inner room, by yourself, where your, prophet, your father will see you in secret and reward you openly. So it says to pray in this manner, not to pray this every prayer every day. It's simply a framework that someone can use. Um, and if, if we're going to say that the first part of verse 12 says that we have to sin every day, then we also have to say the second part of verse 12 means we must be sinned against by someone every day. I mean, has there ever been a day when someone hasn't sinned against you? Yeah, I think there has. But that's impossible, according to these people. That's impossible. Every, someone has to sin against you every day. Now, if everyone has to sin every single day, then it would make sense that someone's going to sin against you every day unless you're in isolation. Because you're going to be around people and, you know, everyone's sinning, so you're going to be sinning against eventually. It's going to hit you eventually. So it's just nonsense to use Matthew 6, 12 to say we have to keep on sinning. And then they'll say stuff like, it's impossible to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which of us has done that even for an hour? Well, where does the Bible say it's impossible to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Where does it say that? I mean, God commands it. Does God command the impossible? We said last week, does God command the impossible? Does, does he punish people for all eternity, for the unavoidable? And notice in that scripture it says, all your, indicating something you possess. All your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul. God is not asking you to love him with something you don't possess. He's asking you to love him with something you do possess and therefore are able to do. And then they'll point to people in the scriptures who have sinned. You know, Peter was called Satan. He said, God said, you just said, get behind me, Satan. He denied Jesus three times. He was rebuked by Paul for being a hypocrite. Barnabas was rebuked by Paul for being a hypocrite. David sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. Noah got drunk. 
Samson sinned against God. But what does any of this prove? Does it prove that they couldn't have done otherwise? Or that what they did was unavoidable at the time that they did it? Why was Peter rebuked harshly by Jesus if he couldn't help but to be led by Satan? Why was Jesus, Peter later rebuked gently and restored by Jesus if he couldn't but do otherwise when he did it? Why were Peter and Barnabas rebuked harshly by Paul publicly if they couldn't have done otherwise? If they had to be that way. If someone does something wrong and they couldn't but do that, they deserve pity. Not rebuke. Pity. If a woman is raped and it's considered fornication, do I chastise her for it and have her hang like the Muslims do? Or do I pity her for that? I pity her for that. And it's not counted against her because she couldn't have done otherwise. It was forced upon her. She's not considered a fornicator in God's eyes. Why was David rebuked by the prophet Nathan? if he couldn't help but to sin with Bathsheba and then have her husband killed by somebody else? Why does the Bible say that drunkards go to hell if Noah couldn't help but to get drunk once he got off the boat? And why are there so many former drunkards? I'm one of them. It was impossible but to be drunk for Noah. Why is the Bible, especially Proverbs, full of warnings regarding the immoral woman if Samson couldn't help but to give in to Delilah? <laughs> All of these people sinning, these people who we're talking about sinning, proved that they were still tempted and they still had free will and they chose to use their free will wrongly. That's it. That's all it proves. It also proves that people who use these examples to try to prove perfection wrong is they don't understand what perfection is in the Bible. Because we said last week, perfection is not saying we lack ability to sin in the future or that we won't absolutely sin in the future or that we lose free will. Just that our heart is loving towards God and men right now. And that's our plan for the rest of our lives. I was watching, uh, just to kind of brush up on the objections, uh, I was watching a video by a guy named Tim Conway, who was uh, a Calvinist. Inconsistent one at that, for for the most part. He uh, pastor of a church down in San Antonio, I believe. In this video where he talks about sinless perfection, he says, uh, "We have physical bodies still. This is the main reason why we still sin. When we get a new body, we won't sin anymore." So if I take his position here to a logical conclusion, it must mean that someone who is six foot five and 300 pounds is more sinful than a newborn baby who is 10 pounds, 12 ounces, and 21 and a quarter inches tall. Because he has less flesh. Less flesh, less sin. It's like those who say that sin is in the blood. Well, take some blood. If I go give some blood to the blood maker, I'll become less sinful in about an hour of giving blood to the Red Cross. That means someone who loses their legs in a terrible car accident becomes less sinful by that car accident. If so, then I guess when Jesus said, pluck out your eyes, cut off your hand, cut off your feet, he was being literal. Because by doing those things, you'd become less sinful. We said last week, our bodies are made of the dust of the earth. Dust cannot inherently be sinful. 
dust can be used in sinful ways. You can use dust and throw it in someone's eyes and hurt them, you know, pretty badly. I mean, when I was at the University of Canada, uh, Missouri, Kansas City, this homosexual came and threw glitter in my eyes. Now, glitter itself is not inherently sinful, but little pieces of metal thrown in someone's eyes can really harm them. Now, he was charged in that for doing that. This is what we see in Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members, your dust, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, not under law, but under grace. Your body does not stop you from being holy. Now, you can, as we've talked about many times, you can develop sinful habits, and your body begins to crave things that you've been giving it. Maybe your body craves sexual morality because you've been feeding it to it. Maybe your body craves drugs or alcohol because you've been giving your body it. But your body didn't crave that from the beginning. You taught it that way. You trained it to be that way. And therefore, your dust, your body, is craving these things you've been feeding it. But your body in and of itself is not sinful. And your body in and of itself will not stop you from being holy. To say that is to blame God, because who gave you your body? God did. Who knit you together in your mother's womb? God did. Whatever you were when you were born was all God's doing. Unless, of course, the mother was a smoker or a drug user or did some kind of other filthy, wicked thing to her baby while he or she was in her womb. But all those things aside, whatever you are when you're born is God's doing. So to say your body keeps you from being holy, to say that God's keeping you from being holy. But God wants you to be holy. God is holy, holy, holy himself. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be like him. 1 John 2, 1. Now, we talked about this a second ago, but we didn't really go into depth on it. But 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And people who use this verse as an objection will skip over that part right there I just read. And they'll say, if anyone sins, we have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ, the right. See, look, Christians sin. And because they sin, they have an advocate. But they skip over that one, two-letter word that's so important. If. Which presupposes you don't have to. And this 1 John 2, 1, she really, I mean, sums up the mindset, the attitude of someone who, who is a true Christian. And they don't want to sin, but if, not when, if they sin, they still have an advocate with the Father, Jesus. They can go back to him, they can confess their sin, they can repent again. Of course, the ideal is to never have to do that ever again. To my own shame, I've had to do this since I've become a Christian. Because I have sinned. My heart is to never sin again. But of course, when we say that, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know what temptation is going to come. We don't know if one day we'll wake up and say, oh, I'm so busy today, I'm going to skip devotions this morning. I'm not going to get in my closet. I'm not going to read my Bible. I have too much work to do. I'll do it later. I never get to it. And the temptation comes because you weren't prepared. You weren't wearing the whole armor of God. 
you weren't staying in the Word like you should and meditating upon it day and night. You weren't staying in your prayer closet and abiding in Christ that you may not sin. And temptation comes and you fall because you didn't prepare yourself. You weren't being watchful and praying that you may not fall to temptation. So John is not saying that sinning is impossible. He's saying that not sinning is possible for a Christian. So what Arabian Hill said last week when we talked about that. And then he'll say something like, I don't practice sin. I don't practice it. But what does practice mean to them? Where does the Bible give a specific and objective definition of how much you must be sinning in order to be practicing sin? Isn't doing it every day practicing it? If someone played basketball every day, I would say they're practicing it. If someone played baseball every day, I'd say they're practicing it. If they, if they were you know, nailing nails into hammers, and with hammers into wood, I'd say they're practicing becoming a carpenter. Whatever their job may be, I'd say they're practicing it. If doing it every day isn't practicing it, and they're claiming to sin every day but not practice sin, then what does practice sin even mean? It becomes useless and worthless and definitionless. And it's left up to the arbitrary mind of the sinner, who will always say they're not practicing sin because they don't want to say that about themselves, no matter how much they sin. And that's the carnal mind right there. That's the fleshly mind. So practice sin becomes a meaningless statement. Because they would never say that about themselves. Because that would condemn themselves. Which is the whole reason they set up this thing in the first place of, I don't practice sin. Because they don't want to be condemned. They want to sin every day and not be condemned. And then there's accusations that are levied against us for believing this doctrine. We're called Pharisees. You know, the problem with the Pharisees, it, it tells you how biblically illiterate people are when they call us that. Because the problem with the Pharisees, not that they were sinless. If they were sinless, they'd be Jesus' best friends. He wouldn't have chastised them. He wouldn't have condemned them. He would have hung out with them all the time. Their problem is that they were sinful. And if, you know, do you think, not just Pharisees now, but anybody, was did have had no sin in their life? Do you really think God would have a problem with that? I mean, isn't that what God wants? Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verses 23 to 28. Let's read verses 23 and 24 first. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done, without leaving the others undone. Blind guys who strain their gnats and swallow a camel. So one problem Jesus had with the Pharisees and the scribes, but people call us Pharisees, they don't call us scribes, they call us Pharisees, that it made big things little and little things big. 
They made big things little and little things big. I don't think we do that at all. We make the big things big. Sin is big. We make that important. Christ dying on the cross is big. We make that important. Where are they going to spend all eternity is important. Repentance of sin is important. These are the things we preach. They're the big things. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. So people will see us with our preaching shirts and our banners and our signs and we're dressed modestly. They say, oh, you're just a bunch of Pharisees. And they're looking at the outside. They well, you're just outwardly clean. You're inwardly full of dead man's boats. And what, what they don't realize is that they already claim to be inwardly filthy themselves. And yet they're still outwardly filthy too. So they don't do either. But we're doing both. Because if you clean the inward of the cup first, the outside becomes clean. When we go to people, we preach to them and get the inward clean. And the outward will be clean as well. Verses 27-28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So we tell people to actually be righteous. Not just be righteous on the outside, like going to church, having your Bible with you, having a cross around your neck, having a Jesus fist in the back of your car, which are not bad things. But you're doing just that, and you're still sinning? You're the very definition of a Pharisee. That's what a Pharisee was, what a Pharisee did. So people who make this accusation against us don't obey God's word at all, not outwardly or inwardly. They tell people that they are the true Christians, but then confess to these unbelievers they're involved in all manner of sin and are no different from the rest of them. They're the Pharisees. They're the real Pharisees. And then there's this claim of legalism and self-righteousness. Go to Matthew 15. Legalism and self-righteousness. Verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who cursed his father and mother and put to death. But you say... Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you may have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their, with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That right there, friends, is the very definition of legalism or self-righteousness. Self-righteousness and legalism is making your own standard of right and wrong, self-righteousness, your own standard of right and wrong, and then seeking to obey that standard to be righteous in God's eyes. 
Obeying God's commands to be righteous is not self-righteousness. That's God's righteousness. Not self-righteousness. So teaching as doctrines and commandments of men, exalting non-biblical traditions as biblical truth. These people worship God with their lips, but not with their hearts. Their heart is far from God, and they worship Him in vain. It's like when we're out in the open air, and people, all the sinners gather together and pray. Do you think that's, God accepts it, or is it a vain prayer? It's vain. It's vanity. And their traditions... Nullify the power of the word of God in someone's life. We'll be dealing with someone that under heavy conviction. Someone come along, oh, you can't be holy. You can't be. Don't listen to them. They're just heretics. They're Pharisees. So why does these traditions they exalt nullify the power of the word of God in someone's life? Because they contradict the word of God. Like things like we can't stop sinning. God's commandments are too hard to keep. I'm only human. I'll obey God when I get to heaven which are not found anywhere in the Bible. They're traditions of men. Traditions of men, which are vain. And nullify the power of the Word of God in someone's life because they're trying to convince someone to believe these traditions over the Word of God. So obeying God's Word is not legalistic. Obeying God's Word is not self-righteous. Self-righteousness is making your own standard of what is righteous and then living by that and calling yourself righteous. Things like the transferred righteousness of Jesus. I'm righteous. Jesus' righteousness was transferred to me. Saying things like, I sin every day, but I'm still righteous in God's light because I'm positionally righteous. That's self-righteousness right there. That's the traditions of men. Saying you must do A, B, and C to be righteous, but A, B, and C are not found anywhere in the Bible. That's self-righteousness. And now I'm going to give you some, as I ponder upon this doctrine for the last seven years or so, seven, eight years, these are some things I think about. I already asked this first one, but would God really have a problem with someone who is sinless? I don't think so. Why aren't people more concerned with sinfulness than perfection? Why are they more concerned with keeping up with their sin and continuing in sin than being what they should be, obedient? Can the devil do worse than sinning every day in thought, word, and deed? If not, then who is someone like who sins every day? God or the devil? That's why the Bible says they're children of the devil. Biblical perfection has nothing to do with ability and everything to do with willingness. Willingness. We're supposed to love God with all of our strength, all of our ability. That's why we're responsible for our sins. Because we are able to respond to God's demands to keep his commandments. If we're not able to respond to God's demands to keep his commandments, then we're not responsible for our disobedience. If God knew that we couldn't obey him because we weren't able, then God would never be disappointed, upset, angry, wrathful, or grieved. If I told my son or my daughter to do something that was impossible and then I didn't do it, I wouldn't be angry. 
I wouldn't be grieved. I wouldn't be upset. But if I had told them to do something that I know they could do and they chose not to do it, then I would be upset. Then I would be grieved. Then I might be angry. How can you regret any of your sins, before conversion or since, if you weren't capable of doing any differently? How can you be sorrowful, which the Word of God commands, 2 Corinthians 7.10, if you were only doing the unavoidable when you sinned? How can you be sorrowful of it? How can Jesus be our example if we really can't follow him? Impossible. Here's one question I like to ask people who come against this teaching. Which sin can't you stop doing? And be specific about it. What sin can't you stop doing? Can you stop sinning for a minute? For an hour? For a day? For a week? For a month? For a year? For the rest of your lives? Of course you can. Of course you can. What exactly is the difference between a lost person and a Christian? Do they live the same way? Is one just forgiven and the other isn't? Is that the only difference between a true Christian and an unbeliever? Sinners think that living holy on earth is hell on earth. Saints know that the closest thing to heaven on earth is living holy in this world. In fact, a lot of sinners would love to go to heaven if they could keep their sin. They'd love to be there. They'd love to be in the kingdom of God if they can keep on sinning. Most people treat us like it's a sin to stop sinning. Sounds kind of funny, huh? Hey, is it a sin to stop sinning? Well, if we can't stop sinning, and it's a sin to stop sinning, then what's the problem? If believing that I'm not a sinner, and that I can live holy in this life is a sin, but we can't stop sinning, then what's the problem? Why are you so angry about it? Why are you coming against it so viciously? But if you can stop sinning, and you are continuing to sin, and teaching others that you can't stop sinning, now you have a problem, don't you? Now you have a problem. That's the very reason why they get angry. Because they're not willing to get their sin. They know they're in trouble. How can you use a holy Bible written by holy men of old, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to justify and prove your unholiness and unholy living? If perfection is impossible, then why do so many people get mad when well-known church leaders commit grievous sins, why don't they just say, well, nobody's perfect? She, I mean, he, he or she couldn't help it. Thou shalt not judge. But they don't do that, do they? They know, deep down inside, they know better. They know that these leaders could have done otherwise. They could have avoided the sin they committed. The only reason that sinners are condemnable is because they are guilty. The only reason that sinners are guilty of sin is because they could have done otherwise. If sin wasn't unavoidable, then the sinner wouldn't be guilty. If the sinner wasn't guilty, they wouldn't be deserving of hell. People will say, well, sinners are blind and sick. You know, you wouldn't kick a blind man, would you? Well, they are willfully blind. Like someone who puts on a blindfold. 
They're willfully sick, like someone who purposely drinks poison and overdoses on drugs. Yet, isn't Jesus the great physician? Can't Jesus give sight? Can't he heal the sick? And are you saying that he's not a good enough physician to heal you completely? You see, the Bible was written to saints. Acts 9.13. Acts 9.32, Romans 1.7, Romans 15.25-26, 1 Corinthians 1.2, Ephesians 1.1, Philippians 1.1, Colossians 1.2, Jude 14, when he comes to ten thousands of his sinners, no, ten thousands of his saints. Why did God bother giving us consciences? He accuses us and we do wrong, according to Romans 2. Well, why does it do that if we can't help it? Is there a reason that we have to have a guilty conscience if we can't but sin? Or we just have to perpetually feel bad the rest of our lives? Isaiah 59, 1 through 2, and 1 John 1, 5 through 7, it said that sin breaks fellowship with God and the saints. Now, if you love God and the saints enough, you love fellowship with them enough, you won't be a sinner. You know, some people who are sinful imperfectionists will admit that sin causes a break in fellowship with God. And they don't realize the seriousness of such an agreement. Because in John 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life, knowing God the Father and the one he has sent. So if you don't know them, if you don't have a relationship with them, you're breaking fellowship with them, you're also breaking connection to eternal life. And in 1 John 1, 5, 7, we saw earlier, you're breaking, uh, having forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus. Husbands and wives, if your spouse told you every day, I love you, honey, but I just can't stop sinning against you, what would you say to them? Would you stick around? Would you conclude that they're telling you the truth? What if your neighbor or a friend or a sibling what if they told you the same thing? I love you, but I can't stop sinning against you. Would you want to be around them? What would you say to them? Would you consider such a person to be a friend? Would you consider them trustworthy? I'll tell you this. My, you know, my children are far from the marriage, marrying age, but if someone wanted to marry one of my children and they said, I can't stop sinning, there's no way I'll have to happen. What a miserable marriage they would have. What a miserable life they would have. Who knows what that person would do against them? Someone who thinks you can't stop sinning. We're going to do some more proof text next week and then talk about how we can live holy. Next we'll look at verses like James 3.2, Ecclesiastes 7.20, uh, maybe a couple other ones too. But although you can see that uh, the true definition of sin we define sin properly, that biblical holiness is possible in this life, and it is required. And we look at some of these proof texts, you can see, and these different arguments and things they say, you can see they don't hold up not only to sound reason, but to the Word of God. Okay, we'll go ahead and open up the floor for questions, objections, or things you want to add. Whether the uh, the uh, passage you quoted from John five, 
quote from John 5 about breaking fellowship with God. What verse was that? That's John 17 and verse 3. And then 1 John 1, 5 through 7. And Isaiah 59, 1 through 2. That wasn't John 5 at all. No. I probably was saying it fast, and I said First John one five through seven. You probably heard John five. Right? Can I get to one more time? Yeah, those same ones. Yes. Yeah, John seventeen three, Isaiah fifty nine one through two. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Yep. If anybody wants the references for the the Bible was written to the saints again, I can give you that, but I wasn't going to go to those. I think we're all convinced of that, but there's many times where Paul was talking about the saints, but if there are no saints... Who's he talking to? There are no holy people, then who is he even referencing? Yes. Brother Kerrigan, do you plan on covering tomorrow or whenever the uh, the scripture about uh, the tree bearing good fruit or bad fruit? Um, I've talked with someone in the past and, and they point to trees in the present day. Right. That are both, and so, um, and then uh, I think it also gives the kind of same idea because brought up in James with springs, right? It's either going to have one kind of water or the other. Yeah. And so, if you weren't planning on talking about those in the future, I was wondering if you could today. Yeah, James three. I'm going to talk about next week, uh, but Matthew twelve thirty three first that we can talk about right now. Says Jesus is telling them, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. So he's telling them to make the tree good or bad, which presupposes free will. And of course, when Jesus commands something, we assume that it's possible to do, otherwise he wouldn't command it. He says, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now we know... And out of the heart is where all the sin comes from. But it's not presupposing here that your heart is in a certain state where it has to be holy or it has to be sinful. Jesus is simply talking to these people here. Uh, in fact, he's, if you go back to verse 24, he's talking to the Pharisees. And he's coming against them. Uh, so he's talking about them, that they're a brood of vipers, that they're children of snakes, or children of the snake, the devil. Okay. Uh, how can you, being evil, speak good things? So as long as you have an evil heart, you won't speak good things. But if your heart becomes good, you can speak good things. Verse 35 says, a good man, wait a minute, I thought there were no good men. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they'll give an account of it in the day of judgment, for by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Now, if your words, which come from your heart, and if you have an evil heart, you'll bring forth evil things. If your words condemn you, 
And you can't help but to have evil words come out of your heart because you have an evil heart involuntarily, then uh, you're condemned and you can't do anything about it. That's not what he's saying. He says, make the tree good or and it's fruit good or else make the tree bad and it's fruit bad. So he's giving them a choice. Someone can go from being a bad tree to being a good tree. Someone can go from having an evil heart to having a good heart. And the other way around. Good heart to evil heart. You know, Ezekiel 33, 18 and 19 says, When the righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. So people can go back and forth depending on how they're living their lives, depending on, on the state of their heart, which is their choice. They make, they decide what the state of their heart is going to be. And whatever the state of their heart is will determine what kind of fruit they bring forth, what kind of words come out of their mouth, whether they're condemned or justified. Uh, so hopefully that, that, does that help out at all? Or you have some follow-up questions? I'll have to think about that some more. That was a lot of information, but uh, did maybe I missed it. Did you cover the, the idea of where it says a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit? I, that's that's actually in Matthew 7. Yeah. Yeah, so every, let's see, verse uh, 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree uh, bear good fruit. So if we combine that with Matthew 12, we see uh, in getting the whole of scripture here, we see that when he says a bad tree and a good tree, he's referring to a bad heart and a good heart, or a good man and a bad man. Uh, so as long as your heart is good, you can't produce bad fruit. As long as your heart is evil, you cannot produce good fruit. But you can change from being a good tree to a bad tree. But a good tree and bad tree is, is likened to, in Matthew 12, 30-37, it's likened to someone who is a good man or a bad man, and he says to change yourself. So obviously it's possible. Overall, I think the context of Matthew 7, though, is, is you're talking about false teachers here. So, But I, I think that the overall principle we see is that um, you know, God wants you to be a good tree, producing good fruit, and you can do that. You can be a good man and bring good treasure out of your heart and be justified instead of condemned. And it says in, in Matthew 7, it says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So if if... If what they're saying is true, that you can't switch from being a good tree to a bad tree, then if they are a good tree, there should be no sin in their life at all. Well, they wouldn't agree with that. I don't know anyone who's, who would hold to that interpretation of you have to be a good tree, you have to be a bad tree, and they would say, well, I'm a good tree and I don't produce any bad fruit. They wouldn't say that. Of course, if you're going to hold to that interpretation that you have to be a good tree or a bad tree and you can't switch back and forth, then you have to say, according to verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That you have to believe, believe in the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional election. It says God picks and chooses. Good tree, bad tree, hell, heaven. Good tree, bad tree, hell, heaven. You know, that kind of stuff. So, but I don't think that's what it's saying in Matthew 7 at all. Anytime Jesus commands something, I'm working under the assumption that's possible to do. And so he says, either make the tree good and it's fruit good, or else make the tree bad and it's fruit bad, then I, I believe that you can do that. 
if you already are a good tree, why do you bother saying it to you? If you're stuck that way, why would he say that to you? If you're stuck as a bad tree, why would he say I mean, you can't do anything about it. Right? You can't do anything about it. So, when, we, when Jesus brings natural examples in to teach spiritual concepts, you, you, you can sometimes you can take it too far because an apple tree can't change into an orange tree. Right? But an apple tree which producing bad fruit can begin to produce good fruit if it's taken care of properly. And an apple tree that has uh, good fruit can begin to produce bad fruit if it's not taken care of properly. So it can go both ways. Do you have any other follow-up questions on that, brother? Sorry if you already covered something. I, right. I don't always grasp everything you say. So. That's good. Um, so let's go to the apple tree, and let's say we're doing, taking good care of it, right. and so it's it's yielding good fruit. Um, in, in the natural sense, you might have uh, one bad apple on your tree, right. even when you're taking good care of it. Did Did you make a comment in regards to something like that? No, I didn't. That's what I'm saying. That's where the natural and the spiritual... I mean, he's giving a natural example, but it's not always going to be... You can't go that deep into it. They're not meant to do it. They're meant to run alongside each other, but they're not perfectly going to run alongside each other when it comes to these kind of...